Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to uh, jump into our series. If you have your Bible, you can turn. Uh, title of our series is On That Day. We're in the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. Um, in other words, they didn't write a long book. That's what the minor prophets are. It's like they didn't have as much. They had just as important things to say, but not as much to say as maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, some of the longer prophets. But uh, Zephaniah is what we're in. If you remember where we're at in the story, I'll catch you up because I like to give context. If you don't know the context of what we're talking about, you can misinterpret things. You can take things out of their context and make them apply in ways that uh, maybe you don't fully understand. And so where are we in God's story? I tell this every week we've been in the series. The Assyrian Empire conquers the northern kingdom. The people of Israel had split into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was incredibly wicked. God asked them to repent, to come to Jerusalem to worship. They said no. They created their own systems of worship. God allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe them out. That should have gotten the southern kingdom's attention and caused the southern kingdom to evaluate their life and think, wow, if that happened to our northern brothers, maybe we should repent to God and like really get serious about following him, his laws and statutes, his ordinances. They didn't. Hezekiah comes along, Hezekiah allowed the wickedness and kind of the idolatry in the southern, then Hezekiah has kind of a a moment where God says, hey, I'm going to kill you, and he repents. Good idea. If God tells you he's going to kill you, Hezekiah repents. As a result, there's kind of a mini revival that lasts for a few years. Hezekiah's 29 years on the throne. Then his son Manasseh comes to power. Manasseh was the wickedest king maybe ever of the northern or southern kingdoms. Manasseh's so wicked that everything that's being prophesied from Jeremiah and being prophesied from Uh, Zephaniah and some of the other prophets is because of Manasseh. That's how wicked he was. God said, I have to deal with the wickedness and bring justice for the wickedness of Manasseh and, and the people following Manasseh. Manasseh also is almost killed and repents. And Manasseh leads a repentance to the nation. Manasseh reigns 55 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to be reigning as king. Amnon comes to power. He's another wicked. He's the son of Manasseh. He's wicked. He is actually murdered after two years because he's so wicked. Then Josiah comes to the throne at age eight. Then he leads a revival for the nation, probably when he was a teenager. Revival happens. He reigns for 31 years. And that's kind of when Zephaniah is doing his ministry. It's at the height of Israel's wealth. It's at the height of one of the greatest revivals in Israel's history. And Zephaniah is bringing them news that just sounds so strange because things are going so well. See, it's, it's easy to give bad news when things are going bad. It's another thing to tell the truth about what's coming in the reality when everything looks like it's going fine. And that's where we find Zephaniah. Assyria gets defeated by Babylon. Necho of Egypt kills King Josiah. Babylon defeats Egypt. And then Babylon and the Medes come together to conquer Judah. And God's people are kicked out of the land for 70 years. And they live in occupied territory ever since until the 1940s. And so this is kind of the story of when Zephaniah is prophesying. And if you remember, week one, we talked about that Zephaniah's message is, you're going to be swept away. Everything's going to be swept away. There's going to come a day when everything's gone, when everything's destroyed. Again, this, isn't, this is a no-brainer from science. Science tells us that there's going to come a day where the earth will be swept away. Everything on it's going to be destroyed. All life will end from something asteroids, solar flare. I mean, there's a long list of things that could get us. But it's going to happen one day. It's a, it's a definite that that will happen. And so Zephaniah is saying, yeah, but it's going to be sooner than you think. It may not be millions and billions of years away. And he says, this is going to happen. And remember, Zephaniah is a minority in his culture. He's most likely black because he's from Cush. He's a Cushite, that would be Ethiopia. Remember, he's of the king's lineage. So he is a privileged minority in his culture. People would not have wanted to listen to the message of a privileged minority. Who do you think you are? You're part of the king's lineage, whatever. And he had to prophesy against his own family and tell them the truth of what was coming. Remember, that would have been very difficult Zephaniah's name means Yahweh is hidden. That God is is hiding, he's keeping back his wrath, but he's also hiding and waiting to bring his full blessing. 
Week two, we talked about gathering and seeking. When you know that things are being swept away, when you know that things are going to end and the disaster is coming, our tendency should be, and God says that your tendency should be to gather together, to call others to gather together, to repent and to seek the Lord. Our tendency when we see things sweeping away is trying to gather stuff together, not people, and try to protect our life and, and withdraw instead of enter the battle. And Zephaniah says, no, you're going to have to keep gathering even though it's hard, even though you're in captivity and the enemies around you don't like it. And then he says, as you're gathering and as you seek me, you're going to need to wait for me because you don't know when the times and seasons are coming. Jesus said that. No one knows the times or the seasons. The Father is set by his own authority. And so we have to wait. And we talked about last week how we wait. And we talked about our identity in waiting. That as we're waiting, we have to remember that according to Scripture, we are princes, judges, prophets, and priests. We have been given authority. But we've been given that authority to wait properly for the coming of the Lord. Not to take matters into our own hands. And we looked at that last week. This week, We're looking at the fact that we're going to be swept away. We know it's coming. That's the panic of our world. There's another virus. There's economic problems. It looks like things are going to get swept away. I promise you they will. Last time I checked, the American flag isn't flying in heaven. I love my country, but it's not going to be flying in heaven. There's going to be one God, one monarch, and he's going to be benevolent and giving to all, and we're all going to love it. It's going to be perfect and wonderful. And so we know things are going to be swept away. We continue to try to gather and seek the Lord when we want to just separate ourselves and to give ourselves. We wait. And how we wait, we wait properly, being the people of God that he's called us to be wherever we're at. And as we do that, here's what's essential. We have to do it with all of our heart. God doesn't just want part of your heart. He wants all of it because he gave all of his Jeremiah 3.14 says, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. He's talking about the fact that someday they're going to come back, but we're going to see in Scripture that he tells us that we are to have all of our heart in with God. Let me ask you this morning, who or what has your heart? Who or what has your heart? Think of the four T's that we talk about. Time, treasure, testimony, right? Wait, I forgot one. Talent, sorry. Time, treasure, talents, and testimony. Think about those things. Who gets the majority of your talent? Who gets the majority of your time? Who gets the majority of your treasure? Who, like, yeah, the government, I know that. But you know what I mean? Like, that's, I'm not talking about what you have to do. I'm talking about when you have the ability to give yourself. When, when it's like you're sitting still, there's nobody demanding anything from you, where does your heart go to? Because God says he wants us to run to him and run to his people. And you know, having a healthy heart takes discipline. It's real easy to have an unhealthy heart in our culture. There's all kinds of stuff that will help you have an unhealthy heart that we love to eat and do. It takes effort to have a healthy heart. And we know that physically. And then when it comes to the spiritual, it's like, myself included, I expect to just pray prayers and God like fix this stuff for me. Versus saying, no, he's actually given me the identity as a prince, a prophet, a priest, a judge. To come before him and to lay down my life and to serve him. Like proper leaders should do. And so this morning, let's dive in. Zephaniah 3.9 says this. We looked at this at the end last week. It says, for then, he's talking about at the end, on that day, when, he, when God finally finishes everything and the last day comes and Jesus comes back to reign, he says, for then, for I will then restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call, on, or to the peoples. Pure speech. Let me ask you something. What, what does your speech reveal about your heart? If you thought about the self-talk in your head and the talk that you have with others, others on a regular basis every day, what would they say your heart's about? 
would they hear you talking about your children all the time? Be like, yeah, you have a heart for your kids. It's not wrong to have a heart for your kids. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and we were talking about sharing Christ with people, talking to people about Jesus. And I said, you know, the problem we have in Christianity today is we don't necessarily lead with the gospel. It's like a bait and a switch. You know, it's like I got to earn the right to share the most important thing in the world with you. Well, that's just ridiculous. If the most important thing, if God has your whole heart, then you would share that up front with people. I just want you to know where my heart is. My heart is all in on God. And if you see me not there, please confront me. Please tell me, like, please help me be there. I mean, you could ask a lost people to help, a lost person to help you with your heart. They can listen to your speech. What kind of speech do you listen to? Do you bristle at speech that you hear in movies or on TV? Or, or do you just kind of go along with it and laugh along? I'm not staying being stick in the mud. Jesus was not a stick in the mud. Otherwise, people wouldn't want to be around him. He had fun. He went to weddings. He went to parties. He, he was out with the people. Had children climbing all over him, having fun with him. Right? This is the picture of Jesus. But we have to ask ourselves and look at our hearts and say, can God restore pure speech in my heart? Because we need to listen to the speech that God gives. And God says that that's one of the things he wants to do. He wants to give us pure speech. And then he defines it. Here's what pure speech looks like. Pure speech is so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. Is your heart all in on calling out on his name and serving him with a single purpose, even in the mundane job, sleep, eating that you do? (laughs) Do you at least pause to think through the name of Yahweh and to serve him with a single purpose, which is to make him known to yourself and to those around you? Because we doubt God all the time. And he says, so the reason I'm giving you pure speech is so that you can actually call on my name instead of calling on everybody else. And so that you can actually serve me instead of looking to serve everybody else. And when you serve others, it's through the vein of who I am with a single purpose. And that single purpose is to make me known. Remember, in the Old Testament, God raised up a people because he said, I want to make you a light, a city on a hill so that people will see a different way to do life when God is with you. We should look different. Our speech should be different. Do you struggle with that? Do I struggle with that? Yes, and that's why there's grace. (laughs) That's why God reminds us, you're still a prophet, you're still a priest, you're still a judge, you're still a prince, you're still mine. Pick yourself up, dust yourself back off, ask forgiveness, and move forward. He goes on to say this, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, So he's talking about Cush. This is beyond Ethiopia. And if you know where they're at, that's far away. That's getting beyond, that's southern Africa, going to the desert. That's way far away. And he says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my people will do this. I'm going to bring people from everywhere. And he says, right now they are my supplicants. What does that mean? A supplication is a prayer offered on behalf of others. That's what a supplication is. It's you putting yourself and supplicating on behalf of other people, praying on behalf of other people. He says, I'm going to gather those from all over the world that are out doing my work because they're praying and seeking to bring people into my kingdom. That's who I'm going to go find. He said, and I get it, they're a dispersed people. He says, I dispersed you. I sent you out. If you remember in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, What was really crazy was that the church was all gathering in Jerusalem. People were coming to know God and they were coming to Jerusalem because the temple was still there. And they would come and worship and they believed that God was going to come back to the temple, which is what the Bible talks about, that God will come back to his temple. They're waiting in Jerusalem for many, many years until 70 AD when God sends the Romans in to completely annihilate and tear down the temple, every stone, until no stone was unturned. Because he told his people to disperse and they refused to disperse. They only gathered and waited. And God said, I don't want you just to always gather. You've got to gather and go. And so he's looking and he says, my supplicant. So let me ask you, if your heart is all in on God, what's your heart for other people? Do your prayers revolve around you and your problems 
every day, all the time in your own head. Not that you shouldn't pray to God, but why don't you just take those and say, God, here they are. I'm done. Help me pray for other people. I'm going to write them down, put them on a piece of paper. I'm going to give them to you. There you go. I'm done. Now I'm going to start praying for others. I'm going to think about other people's problems. Not that I'm not going to allow people to speak into me and help me with my issues, but if you stay so focused on yourself that your heart is for you, are your prayers for you, for you, for you, for you, or are your prayers for something bigger than you? Are they for that coworker, that family member, that friend, your children, your wife, your parents? Where do your prayers go? Or do you just not pray at all because God doesn't have your heart? What consumes your thoughts and minds? And next, God says, my people who I make pure, who I help them call on me, and I give them the power to serve me, who are scattered everywhere, he says, they will bring an offering. I'm sorry, pause. This is what James says about prayer. James 2 says, you desire and do not have, you murder and covenant cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own evil desires. Adulterous. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? We spend so much time as Christians trying to fit in with the world trying to earn the right to speak the gospel into people's lives by looking like them. Why? I'm not saying we have to like try to be weirdly different, right? We need, I mean, we live in a culture. Don't like try to overthrow the culture if it's just like their dress is different. Okay, well, dress like the culture does if it's not like unbiblical to dress that way. But there comes a point in which We're allowing the world to determine our speech and determine what we do, and our prayers are affected because we're praying for the worldly things. We're not praying for the spiritual things. And God says, my people on the day I return will be excited about me returning because they've been praying for my return. That's what they've been praying for. They've been praying, dear Lord, save my family member before you return and take them home to be with you or return and take all of us out. Their prayers are consumed with that, and not in a negative way, but also in a positive way, a thankfulness for the people that God's placed in your life. When was the last time you just spent time thanking God for people he's placed in your life, and how he's orchestrated your life to have people that care about you, that seek you, that love you? James says the reason we don't have is because we ask with wrong heart motives. We don't, we don't ask with the right heart motives. And then we get mad at God because he's not coming through. Well, what's your heart motive for that thing? Lastly, he says, my people will bring an offering. When you bring an offering to God, when you serve the Lord, when you do these things and you speak about him, do you see that as you giving an offering to him? Not like, oh, I have to give this up. It's time to give my stupid offering. (sighs) ask for all these offerings, or is it like, wow, I get to offer the God of the universe something when he has everything and he doesn't need anything, and he allows me to participate in giving him a breath, in giving him some calories (laughs) as I work, in, in giving his word to other people. Like, he allows me to give an offering when I don't deserve to give anything to him. And, and it's so tainted, and yet he still says, they are looking to bring to me an offering. Okay, well, what kind of offering? And here's the thing I would question you to ask. What are you expecting to get from the offering? Because that also exposes a heart motive. Most of us, if we're honest, we give offerings, we do things for people we serve because we're expecting something in return. And when it doesn't happen, our hearts expose us because we're upset we didn't get what we've been investing in. I should get this because I've done all this, Lord. Versus just saying, wait, I didn't make the offering to get something because I'm already a prophet, a priest, a judge, and a prince. I have everything. I have everything. So I'm just giving what I've already got. 
And I know that someday I'm going to have everything and I may not have everything I need now, but someday you promise I will and I'm going to trust that and I'm going to give an offering anyway. Look at what God says about his people because in the Old Testament they were commanded to give tithes and offerings, a lot of tithes and offerings. They could also give as many thanksgiving and fellowship offerings as they wanted. They could gather people together and say, hey, while we wait on the Messiah, while we wait on the next festival coming up, I'm just going to throw a party. I'm going to invite you over and we're just going to spend some time giving thanks to God and eating. Let's do it. It was called the Thanksgiving offering. They could do a fellowship offering. Same thing. Well, hey, let's just all get together and hang out and fellowship. And you could do that offering in between the festivals. Wasn't required. If you didn't do the fellowship offering or Thanksgiving offering, you weren't looked at badly. You just, you didn't do it. That's fine. But it was an extra. It was, it was a symbol, supposed to be a symbol of the heart. But even that we twist, don't we? And be like, well, last year I did six Thanksgiving offerings and Bob over there didn't do a one. I'm awesome in my Thanksgiving offerings. That shows your heart. It shows my heart when I think those thoughts. Look at what Isaiah says about offerings. Isaiah says this. What are all your sacrifices to me, God, the Lord, uh, asked the Lord. I've had enough of the burnt offerings and rams and the fat of the well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? this trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your income is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of Solomon assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I can't stand offerings when your heart's so wicked. Like you're, you're making the offering because you think it's, it makes me good with you. Like we're making a deal. I hate that. Because it's not a relationship, that's a business contract. And I am not a business contract God, I'm a relational God. He says, your incense is detestable. To, oh, sorry, jump down. I hate your new moons and your prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me and I'm tired of putting up with them. When you lift your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. So many times in Christianity, we will try to make up for the evil by doing offerings, by doing things. And that just exposes that God doesn't have your heart. And he says, I want to have your heart. You can seek me. You can confess. You can ask others for help. But if we're honest, we actually enjoy the evil. There's something about it that gives us life, that, that causes our heart to jump, our heart to race when the dopamine hit hits. It actually causes your heart to get excited. And we wonder, yeah, I'm not excited about the things of God. Why? God is amazing. And he says, I wish you would cleanse yourself. I heard a sermon a couple of weeks ago that was talking about this idea of cleansing or washing yourself. It's the only thing that God tells us we can do. We cannot justify ourselves. Jesus has to be our justification. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus has to save us. If you go through all the theological principles, you see over and over again in Scripture where God commands us, wash. And you know what's great about washing? Washing just recognizes that you're covered in something that's not you. Let me repeat that. Washing and cleansing exposes that you are covered in something that's not you. And so you wash it off to be clean. God's like, that covering you've got is a mess. That's not you. That's not who I've created you to be. That's not who I want you to be. You're not. Cleanse yourself. Go get a shower. <laughs> like we know this. It's why we shower every day. It's why people look at us and go, go cleanse yourself. It's the one thing God says that we can do. It's the thing that Jesus would tell people to do when he did healings. He'd go wash yourself here. Right? They went through the Red Sea. They went through, like these, this idea of cleansing or washing. That's what baptism is. It's why baptism is such a glorious symbol. It's why immersion baptism is a glorious symbol of being cleansed and washed and, and new when you come out. Like, I am cleansed and I'm asking the body of Christ to continue to help me stay clean. And you keep going back to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit cleanses me. Just like you go get a shower. That's the process. You don't go back for justification again and again and again. You're already justified. 
before God. He's already forgiven you. You don't go back for forgiveness again and again. God has already forgiven you. You go back and you say, I put on this thing that doesn't look like forgiveness. I want to wash it off so I can see the forgiveness. I'm going to go back and wash off so I can see the love and the justification and the salvation I have because I'm getting all messed up and I'm thinking that I'm a dirty, filthy, awful, terrible person. And God says, I want to cleanse you. And once I've cleansed you, you're clean and white as snow, but you're going to get temporarily dirty and you need to wash. He goes on and he says, learn to do what is good. Once you've cleansed yourself, that means you take care of you and your heart first. Now you can actually do what's good. Now you can actually know what justice really is. And how to act in justice, not just in meanness. Correct the oppressor. Have you ever tried to correct an oppressor? Correct a bully? It normally doesn't go well. And God says, you're going to have to correct the oppressor. He says, defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And then he says, come, let us discuss this says the Lord. So he says, let us discuss your mess and the need for us to be active in the world, the need for us to give our hearts to God and give our hearts to others. And then he says, as you do this, as we're discussing that, let me remind you, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be like wool. Because of what God has done. He's the one that washes. He's the one that cleanses. He asks us to just keep coming back to wash ourselves and to come before God and say, here I am again. Cleanse me. Wash me. Hosea 6 says it this way. The book of Hosea, if you remember, is a book of Hosea who married a prostitute and his entire life was her leaving him and coming back and her leaving and coming back. and It was a mess. The book is just a brokenhearted, oh my goodness. And God says, this is the picture of me with my people. Remember where James said adulterous friends to the world? Hosea's wife, Gomer, kept going back to the world she knew. And Hosea kept bringing her back out, and it was a picture of what God has done with us. He says, what am I going to do with you? This is towards the end of the book. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? How about for just a second before you read on, you put your name there for a moment. What am I going to do with you, Matt? What? am I going to do with you, Matthew? See, he's looking and he's calling God's people. He's calling Ephraim and Judah. He's using some names of the Old Testament. Judah, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, is Jesus. And he says, what am I going to do? Your loyalty is like the morning mist, like the early dew that vanishes. Wake up in the morning and it's going to be a great day. Sun's out, have your quiet time. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live for God today. This is going to be awesome. And then you get to work. And someone's left all kinds of stuff out. And someone didn't do what they were supposed to. And you got 10 emails that you weren't supposed to. And God says, check your heart. I've called you to be mine and to be my servants. He says, this is why I've used the prophets to cut them down. I've killed them with the words of my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning for I desire loyalty and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He says, knowledge is the fear or the beginning of wisdom. He says, I want you to have a knowledge that puts you in awe of me. That it's not Jesus is my best buddy and we just hang out. And I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want. Jesus is the king of the world and he still wants to hang out with you. That should cause you to pause for a moment and be like, yeah, he's my friend and he's gonna show up, but if the king of the world's showing up, I might wanna clean my house. Because if my mama showed up, I'd have my house clean. You know, I'd be like, I gotta at least pick some things up because mama's coming or dad's coming. I got to put the show on. When you're married, this is, goes to another level, right? When you're married and have children and the in-laws are coming, right? Whichever side. It's like when my parents are coming, I can get by with some more. But then the other person's saying, those are your parents. And I can't look bad in front of your parents. Like this pressure of putting on. Like he says, I just desire loyalty. I desire for you just to do the simple, loyal things that relationships require. 
Just to be a loyal person. Let your yes be yes, no be no, Jesus said. And anything beyond this, he said, is from the devil himself. So Jesus said, let your yes be yes, no be no. Anything else is from the devil. If you do something from the devil, repent. <laughs> Sorry, I did a devil thing. My bad. Please forgive me. You're forgiven. Jesus says it this way in Matthew. He turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> this is Peter having a devil moment, right? This is Peter having a moment where right before this, Peter was declaring Jesus the Messiah. And it was like everybody was looking at Peter because Peter said, you are the Messiah. Peter was on cloud nine thinking like, I got it right. I won. Man, my heart is all in on Jesus. Yes. And just right after that, the next paragraph is this, where Peter's like, there's no way I'm going to let you die, Jesus, because Jesus is prophesying that he's going to die, that there's a day coming when he's going to be swept away. And you're still going to have to gather and you're going to have to wait on me. And you're going to have to you have a heart for me, even though I'm not present. And Peter's like, oh, no. No, no, I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to fight for you. And Jesus' response to him is, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Man is concerned with earthly kingdoms. Man is concerned with not dying because man thinks you can't be resurrected. You can be, you will be. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me. Anyone wants to have their heart all in with me, he says, he must deny himself. It's the denial of self is where it starts. It's saying, I'm not God. I surrender. Deny himself. Take up his cross. That means you understand that you're giving your life away and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me, he'll find life. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man, look at this, this is what Zephaniah is prophesying, on that day the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Let me ask you, what have you done with your relationship with Jesus? Because the reward that Jesus brings for those that have surrendered their life to Jesus and have asked for his grace and said, God, you're mine, the reward he brings is eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't get it. This isn't about doing things so you get a reward. If you look in the Bible, most of the people that came before God and came at the end of their life before God knew they had nothing to offer and God had to remind them, no, you actually offered everything for me. Thank you. Their perspective was they were offering nothing. They couldn't do enough. They couldn't give enough to the God they loved. And then God said, look at all you've done. You had no idea, did you? That's how all the prophets, that's how Abraham died. He died not seeing the promise. Not knowing what was going to happen. He goes on and says this. What does this offering truly look like? This offering that Zephaniah says people will give? Well, it looks like denying yourself, and Paul says it this way when he's writing to the church in Rome. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, it's understanding that God is a compassionate and gracious and merciful God. You have to start there. I urge you to present your bodies as a living offering or a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual worship. Singing music on a Sunday may, not, may or may not be worship. Giving your tithe may or may not be worship. What is truly worship is doing it from a place where your heart is surrendered and you say, I am a living sacrifice. I'm yours. And I don't know how any of this makes sense and I don't know how going to work today makes sense, but I'm going to do it to honor you and to make you known and to pray for those kids and to pray for those people and to pray for those employees and to pray. That's what I'm going to do today. He goes on and he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember, we talked about the mind earlier. So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace, Paul says, given to me, not by the strength he has, not by what he's proven, what he's earned, by all of his academic credentials. No, by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. 
Let me ask you, when you look at your own heart, how highly do you think of yourself in your own heart? You know, we can twist it really well. We can, like, put ourselves down and be in depression and talk ourselves down to a way that God says he doesn't want us to. He says, I want you to think rightly about yourself in your heart. You're trying to be like false humble. I'm, I'm going to prove I'm so miserable so I can prove something to God and others. That, God says to rejoice in your suffering. <laughs> we'll see that in a second. Or the flip side is true where we try to put on a show when we are hurting. And God says, look, don't think too highly of yourself. Think highly of God. And then he says, look, instead, think sensibly. As God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Some of you are more sensible than others. <laughs> Some of you have had a little bit different measure of faith than other people. You have a little bit more sense about you than others have. That's okay. God's giving you more sense as you grow in your faith. He does that for me, praise the Lord. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to, just like Paul said the grace, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. God says that he has given us different gifts and our hearts will be exposed, not just by what we say about God and our relationship with God and our quiet times and talking about God all the time. It will be exposed in how we use ourselves in the body of Christ. Are we constantly looking to get or are we looking to God and saying, God, I'm praying for you to show me the heart you've given me for the things in this world. And I'm going to try to get around people who show me their heart and push me out to have a heart for the things I have a heart for. There are people in this room who I know have a heart for youth and have a heart for kids. And we don't have a lot of kids or youth currently. But I have watched them go out and serve the world's kids and the world's youth, which is a lot harder than showing up and serving church kids on a Sunday. And they've given their lives to it as a testimony to the giftedness that they have. And that is so downplayed so often in the church. And it shouldn't be. It should be sung from the rooftops. That if you have a gift, you want to use it everywhere you are, not just in one specific place. It's who we are, and there are gifts you don't have. And guess what? If you try to use those gifts in multiple places, multiple people will tell you, stop it. <laughs> if you go try to use the gifts you don't have in the workforce, they'll look at you and say, you're fired. <laughs> In a church, hopefully they'll be loving enough to look at you and say, that's just not your gift. I love you. Maybe you should do this. As I said before, I'm not supposed to grill in our church. It seems silly, but it's just a good reminder to me that if I'm grilling, we failed as a church. And your meat's going to be well, well done. I just, I'm not good at it. I, it's just I don't, have the, I don't have the heart for it. I try, and sometimes it turns out okay, but it's like a... I'm like working the whole time wondering if I'm failing and cutting the chicken open. And so you're going to get a piece of chicken. It's got like four slices in it as I open it up. Like I, I, other people in our church don't have that problem. Zephaniah goes on to say this. On that day, when Jesus returns, when everything is made right, when God brings his judgment, when things are swept away and we see that everything we've been living for is true, you will not be put to shame. Because of everything you've done in rebelling against me. Read that again. You need to hear that this morning. I know you rebel against God. God knows you rebel against God. We read the Bible and everybody's rebelling against God. But he gives them the reminder on that day, you will not be put to shame. I know what you've done. I know the rebellion in your heart. I know the wickedness. You won't be put to shame because of what I've done for you. For then I will remove your proud, arrogant people from among you. And you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Never again will you give false offerings. Your heart's going to be full in. I will leave a meek and humble people among you and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh, which was his intentional purpose when he said, I want you to declare my name. 
You see, we define anything intolerant as pride and arrogance. It's not. It's not. Pride and arrogance is not. Sometimes you got to be confident and truthful, and that comes across prideful and arrogant to people who don't want to hear it. How dare you tell me? Well, is it true what I told you? Did I say it in a way that was vindictive or mean? Like, did I finish it with, and I hope you die? Like, is that how I finished the statement? Then, yeah, that's pretty arrogant. He goes on. I mean, don't you want to be this person? I mean, I do. I want to be, be someone that stops struggling with pride, and I don't want to be haughty anymore. Haughty means, like, overly prideful, like putting on a display of yourself, like social media. So how do you know if you are truly humble and what you're taking refuge in and where your heart is? Well, it's pretty simple. God tells them, you're going to see it. Look at what he said in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, when God is giving the law to his people that he called out of slavery, he says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These are the words I'm giving you today. Are to be, or these words are to be on your, in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your head and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore. On that day when God makes everything right, he says, until then, here's what I want you to do. I want you to constantly be giving your heart to me. Constantly be explaining my heart to other people. Constantly have a heart for the children and the grandchildren and the others who need to hear about the Lord as a continual offering. Jesus repeats this in the New Testament. They come to him and they say, teacher, which commandment? In the, a rich command in the law is the greatest. And Jesus said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's repeating the Shema, which is the Old Testament um, Shema, which is still repeated at all the festivals, Jewish festivals and things today. They repeat it when they wake up in the morning and before they go to bed. They repeat these words. So when Jesus says this, everybody in the audience would be going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, we say it every day. Then he follows up and he says, and look, this is the greatest and most important command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Love God, love people. The entire Old Testament is all about loving God and loving people. All the rules, laws, statutes, and ordinances are trying to get people to love God and love people. The Ten Commandments, the first four commands are about loving God. The next six commands are about loving people. God establishes the authorities and the way that love needs to happen. Love is not love. God is love. And what he says is loving is loving even if we don't believe it. And that is a hard lesson for people to learn. And someday you're going to stand before God Almighty having him offered all of his love, the hard, tough love that he gives, giving it all, and hopefully you've made a decision to surrender to his love instead of trying to get your own. Zephaniah goes on to say this, which we've now read two times. Sing for joy. If you really want to know if your heart's in on these things about the proud, about the haughty, if you really want to know if your heart's giving the offering God wants you to give, you're supplicating, he says, let's check it for a second. Do you sing for joy? Or do you sing because you have to? Is there true joy in your heart when you sing? And then he says, daughter Zion. Father, daughter. What a beautiful picture. And then he says, shout loudly, Israel, my people. Shout it out. That's all the people. That's the boys. You shout. Right? And then he goes, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, all of you, especially you, my daughter Zion. I've been struggling with this. I mean, trying to be a person that chooses to be glad and rejoice and to sing for joy when I look around and think, where's the joy? What's there to rejoice about? What's there to be good? Look at what everybody else has. Look at what everybody else is doing. Look at all this stuff. And God's like, quiet, quit it. Look at me. Just look at me. And if you look at me, it'll motivate you to look at them differently. Sing for joy to me. Shout loudly for me. Be glad and rejoice because you have me. Because I have literally come into your heart. 
Oh, yeah. Philippians 1, or Philippians 4, 4 says this. Again, Paul writing says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Not sometimes, always. Again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. So first, it's your heart before God. Rejoice before God. And if you're doing that, then your desire is going to want to be to tell people how great your God is because you're so busy rejoicing in him. And you're going to be gracious with people because you want them to see the rejoicing they can have in God. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on this stuff. Can I just tell you, we live in a world that's trying to distract us from all of this because the world wants our heart. Satan wants your heart. And God says, I want your heart. Make a choice. And there is a discipline to rejoicing. There is a discipline to learning how to be glad when things aren't going well. It is a discipline. Just like it's a discipline to get your physical heart healthy and you have to give up thinking and doing and eating and doing the things the way you do it. It's no different in your spiritual life. First Thessalonians says, Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever asked, I wonder what God's will is for my life? Please put that on your mirror at home. God has given you his will for your life. It is rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. Welcome to God's will. That's what we're supposed to be doing as believers. That's what our hearts are supposed to be doing on a regular basis. It's God's will. You know what I struggle with the most? Rejoicing always, praying constantly, and giving thanks in everything. Because everything around me is fighting God's will, and that is God's will. And it, it takes an act of discipline for me to stop, to deny my thoughts and, and say, no, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to think about this. And it's a constant battle. And it's a good battle. It's the same battle that anybody who gets disciplined in any other area of their life has to walk through to get on the other side of the discipline. School, education, learning, eating, exercising, doesn't matter. And yet in our spiritual lives, we've been sold this bill of goods that once we accept Jesus, everything's just going to get better. No, now that you've got Jesus, you actually have the power source. You have a coach to help you get healthy. You have a power in you that's going to help you get healthy. But if you keep pushing the coach away and pushing the health away, you're going to not be healthy. 1 Peter 4.12. Peter, so you've got Paul saying it. Now Peter, Isaiah said Dear friends, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Have you ever thought to yourself, why is this happening to me? <laughs> Read your Bible. Weird stuff happened to all of God's people all of the time. It's not unusual. We should kind of pause and go, yeah, it's pretty normal. Pretty normal to get sick. Pretty normal not have any money. Pretty normal to be... Uh, Frustrated, pretty normal, have wicked people around. Yep, all normal. Check, check, check. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Messiah so you may also rejoice with great joy when that day comes on the revelation of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, sometimes we're ridiculed because we're just dumb and we do stupid things. But when you are ridiculed because you're seeking God's will, because you're seeking to have the fullness of God, God says, yeah, that's pretty normal. And just know that you're being very blessed to be able to experience that. Tell me the last time that we don't talk this way and we should talk this way. This should be the normal way Christians give their full hearts. Goes on, says this. John said it this way. 
Again, I'm giving you a lot of people who understood the gospel. They understood. These were people with surrendered hearts writing to you and to me so that we could have surrendered hearts. John says, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's God the Father. There's God the Son. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. I've given you all the Bible to explain to you the way to live life to navigate to where I'm going. Let's go. John says. As we wrap up, I want to read a psalm for you. This is Psalm 40. This is written by David, and most scholars believe that this was written by David probably when he was in his early 40s, early to mid-40s. So like when he was almost dead. No, I'm just kidding. Um, In that time period, they didn't live to be as old as we do. You have to remember, David was anointed to be king at 10 or 12 years old. He knew he was going to be the next king. Remember, prophet, priest, judge, and king. He knew he was going to be the guy at age 10 or 12. And finally, he becomes king after 32 years. He becomes full king of the entire empire. It took 32 years for David to experience the promise of being the king, and he was on the run for his life, most of it, trying to be killed by the other king. David writes this psalm after he's come into his kingdom. Most scholars believe that this psalm was written after David has finally kind of, he's been established as the king. And look at what David writes. This shows why David was a man after God's own heart. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. 32 years. And he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of a muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song. Do you see all the things Zephaniah is prophesying right here happening, what we've been talking about? He put a new song in my heart or in my mouth and a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord because of my walking with God, David says. How happy is the man who's put his trust in the Lord and who has not a turn to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord, my God, you've done many things. Your wonderful works and your plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open up my ears to listen. You do not ask for whole burnt offering or sin offering. Then I said, see, I have come. Here I am, I offer myself. It is written about me in the volume of the scrolls. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives within me. I proclaim how right you are, your righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed as I know you, Lord. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from everyone else. In the great assembly, Lord, I do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number have surrounded me and my sins have overtaken me. I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs on my head and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to deliver me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Let those who seek to take my life be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wish me harm be driven back and humiliated. And let those who say to me, aha, aha, be horrified because of their own shame. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord is great. I am afflicted and needy. The Lord thinks of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. Does that psalm not just resonate in your heart? 
Does that psalm not go over all the scriptures? Like God has this consistent message. I've given you Old Testament, prophets, New Testament, the Old Testament law. I'm taking you to the psalms and songs. It's the same message over and over again. And God says, I'm patient with you as you figure it out. That's what David knows. And he cries out to God. And he cries out that he would allow him to be used to make him known to other people. Zephaniah wraps up with this. The Lord, in your rejoicing, remember, the Lord has removed your punishment. He has already turned back your true enemy, Satan. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear, fear harm. And on that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. I don't know if you have fears I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know where your heart is. But can I tell you that God does and he's asking you to choose him. He's asking you to go back through these scriptures we've read and to look at your own heart and say, God, I want to be yours today on this day. And from this day forward, follow you. And so I want to surrender to you, God says. See, God has given us everything. God came on that day and he died on the cross for you and me. And he said, I'm going to come again on that day to bring you back to myself. And all the way through the Bible, that has been the message of God, showing up, pulling back, showing up, pulling back. And one day Jesus says, I'm going to come and it's going to be over. And that may be before he comes for you. You may not have another breath in your body. You may not have too many more heartbeats left. The world may go on another thousand years, but that doesn't matter because God wants to take you right where you are and he wants to know you. And he wants you to show, he wants to show you his heart and he wants to show you your heart and give you a new one. It is a glorious message. It is a beautiful picture. As we understand that things are being swept away, we gather and seek the Lord, we wait. And he says, just give me your heart. So if you're struggling with your heart this morning, can I just tell you, God is looking at you and saying, I love you. I want you. Surrender to me. I'll be with you. And I'll help you cleanse yourself and to keep your heart healthy so that others might see how great it is to know the God of the universe and his son Jesus whom he sent. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this place, to know you, to be able to surrender to you, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done. Lord, I thank you that you, you are faithful when we are faithless. I thank you that even though we see things are going to be swept away, even though we understand that we gather and seek, and it can almost be monotonous to continue to gather and seek. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I not at bed and home at in bed? Why am I not doing something else with my life? Lord, there's something about doing this that's been done for thousands of years that really does show your glory. It shows where our heart really is. And so I thank you that you do that. Lord, help us to truly love you and love others with our whole heart. Lord, I pray that if anyone here hasn't surrendered to you, that today would be the day that they would finally say, this is my day before God. I surrender. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me and to make me who you want me to be. And Father, I pray that if anyone listening online, if they pray that prayer, anyone in this room, that they would know that you say you forgive them and that you want to give them new life. And then I pray they would connect with people, with a body of believers to get help in the process and understand what your heart really is because you tell us to love you and love people starting with your people, the church. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, I pray we would be encouraged this morning by this word, that we wouldn't grow weary, our hands wouldn't grow weak, as Zephaniah said, and that we would understand that the things that we experience are normal. It's what people who want to follow you will experience in this world, and yet we still trust you. And Lord, I praise you for the people in this room who use their gifts and their abilities to serve this church. And they use their gifts and abilities to serve others in the world. And I pray that you would be on their lips as they do it. So that more might come to know you before that day comes. Because on that day, 
it will be over. And so, Lord, we pray that you would save those we love. You would give us confidence to be your messengers. Help us to rejoice and be glad and be thankful, we pray in your name. Amen.